Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. How much do you know about the food of East Africa? Probably not a whole heck of a lot. A new cookbook by Hawa Hassan and Julia Tertian aims to change that. In Bibi's Kitchen features recipes and stories behind the food of eight East African countries along the Indian Ocean. At the heart of the book are the Bibis, the grandmothers, who are sustaining a cultural legacy through their cooking. It is our great pleasure to have Hawa Hassan as our guest for the hour, so you can get to know the flavors of East Africa and the Bibis that are celebrated in this cookbook. But first, let's get to know Hawa a bit. Her journey from refugee to model to creator of Bazba's hot sauces to now cookbook author is pretty remarkable. Hawa Hassan, welcome to Seasoned. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. It is uh, the antithesis of uh, being on the continent of Africa because we are experiencing a snowstorm. Be that as it may, <laughs> I, I wonder if before we, we talk about the babies or the grandmothers, if you wouldn't mind telling us just a little bit of how you went from uh, your home country to the United States. Yeah, so I was born at a time of unrest in Mogadishu, which is the capital of Somalia. I then was moved to Kenya with my family during the Civil War, the beginning of 1991. And later on, I was sent to Seattle to live with a group of family friends um, where I spent most of my formative years. And so, you know, it was all out of necessity that I went from Somalia to Seattle. But, you know, there's a great connection in that all of those parts are a thread through who I am. You know, I'm as much as a girl next door in Seattle as I am the eldest daughter in a Somali family. It's interesting to, to hear your story because I think like so many immigrants, I remember my mom telling me stories of she came over and she was like, oh, my parents are going to come from Puerto Rico on Sunday. And it was years before they actually came over to what we know is the mainland. Yeah, I mean, I think that in time of unrest and uncertainties, people are just operating from a place of just trying to survive. And my mother, who was really young when she had myself and my brother, you know, she didn't know how migration worked. She'd been married since she was like 16 years old and a mother since she was like 18 or something. And when all of this happened, she was 23 or 24. And I sometimes try to put myself in her shoes because when you think about the things I was doing at 23, 24, and the things that she had to endure and learn and process and move through are just worlds apart. And so my mother and I talk about this often, but you sent a little girl off on her own to a new land. Your only mindset is, you know, one less child, one less person to find documents for. We're going to get there as soon as possible. So she, in her young age, was never operating from the place of that can happen. She just was like, I believe in governments. I believe in systems. You know, everyone has said that that can happen. And so I'm going to trust that if I send her first, we're going to be able to follow shortly after, which she discovered 15 years into it that that wasn't going to be the case. So Hawa, it's kind of amazing because being at such a young age for that, you kind of forced to grow up really quick. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I I envy people who had childhoods. <laughs> <sighs> so it, okay, what is one of the first things you can remember eating before you came over here? Because I know you were very young. Uh, you know, one of my first memories I have is making an egg sandwich. And, and I can remember very vividly being three and a half years old. Is there anything like that that sticks out in your brain? 
I think the thing that I always remember, and it has to do a lot with smell, is tea. Like, I just remember drinking tea with my mom and her friends. And, you know, our tea is similar to Indian chai. And so, like, those are the smells that are most, I guess, at the front of my brain when I think of home and when I think of, like, my first experience with food. I, I just think about that, that shah as opposed to, like, you know, I don't remember the first time I had pasta sauce because I feel like I've been eating it my whole life. But with the tea, it was like a privilege, you know? Food is such a powerful thing. And you're so right how it affects you in different ways. For me, it's even hearing certain things or like you said, smelling certain things can really bring you back. It's super powerful, man. I, I think it's great to to just recap all that. And, you know, like I'm already uh, hearing that egg sizzle in the pan again when I was I could I couldn't even see over the stove, you know? Yeah. No, absolutely. It really transports you to that time. I want to just continue on your journey of you're in Seattle. You joined the basketball team. I joined the basketball team. By the way, <laughs> so jealous. To what position did you play? I played the two and the three. So like I was like a small guard and a forward because I was really mm -hmm. tall. How tall are you? I'm 5'10". So envious of you. You're almost the same height as her, Marisol. That's good. What do you need? A foot and a half? Foot and a half. You'll be there. Five to one, a good thing, but but you you're so you're in Seattle, you're gathering all these all this information about your adopted home, um, all these experiences of playing a sport, being with this American family, and you go from Seattle to New York, and the second part of your journey picks up. You decide to model, or did they did they find you? What came first? Yeah, I was I was modeling in Seattle. I started modeling at at the end of high school, just by accident and really have fallen into it. And I graduated high school when I was 16. And so basically graduated high school when my mom got married and like, what a privilege. And so by the time I was 19, it was very clear that I'd outgrown the market in Seattle. And so God bless my old agent's heart, but she was like, you got to leave. And I was like, but I don't want to. <laughs> and at this point in your life, what role did food and cooking play? Zero. You know, I grew up with the idea that cooking was a chore. And so what I often did was offer myself to wash dishes at people's homes. You know, when I was invited to, <laughs> I like to guess you want back. Like, you know, we say there are those that eat and the, there's the group that washes the dishes. Like I'm in the group that washes dishes. And so... You know, it, it didn't. I, I had no interest in cooking. I had no interest in eating Somali food. My biggest interest was assimilation, assimilation, assimilation. Like, yeah, there is no, this is it. Like, no one's coming. So you've got to get used to this life. You've got to, you know, you've got to be the, I was trying to take the path with the least resistance, which was to just dive in and become an American teenager. Which is so interesting because I think you hear now in this day and age, you know, I'm I'm the daughter of immigrants and I have such vivid memories in college of being like, I am tired of assimilating. But when you're when you're fighting for your survival, I think to your point, you want to blend in, you want to feel comfortable, you want to assuage the fears of the people that look at you as though you are completely different. And you managed to do that which is, you know, speaks volumes to your character because you didn't stop at the modeling. No. You were like, oh, wait, there's more. There's more. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I was, 
I'm, I'm still this way in that, like, I realize how different I am, but I think my superpower comes in connecting with people. And so even as a little girl, my biggest desire was to have my friends' parents think that I was safe, knew that I was a good kid who had just had different circumstances, you know? Um, and that has really served me in life. Like, I have no interest in being or acting far away from myself. And one way I learned to do that really early on was just to put things in compartments. Like, okay, you're a childless or you're a motherless child, <laughs> but you're also really privileged. You play on this great basketball team. You go to a wonderful high school. You are, so many people are invested in your success. And that has really been what saved me and my life in that, I just didn't have the luxury to resist, you know? So I, I did the best that I could with what I had. And that was just to always stay in deep gratitude for the life I was having. You know, even as a parent hearing those stories, I feel, I just, I feel awful that, that even as a thought that has to cross your mind, you know, to even think about things like that as a child, especially, I mean, your mother and family, they actually never made it here, right? Yeah, no, they migrated to Oslo. And in 2008, I also went to Oslo because by now I'd been living in New York and I moved here at the tail end of 2015. And so, you know, I got here and I was like, oh, Oslo is closer than Seattle to New York. You know, that that's how it felt to me. I was like, oh, it's like flying to the West Coast. Yeah. And so I booked myself a flight and went home. This is fantastic. And if you're just joining us, we are in conversation with Hawa Hassan. She's the author of In Bibi's Kitchen, the recipes and stories of grandmothers from the eight African countries that touch the Indian Ocean. And that trip to Oslo inspired the entrepreneur in Hawa. Because what did you bring with you on that trip to Oslo? Well, the first trip, I didn't bring anything but my suitcase. But as time went on and I went back, I, I started to get really comfortable in my role again as the eldest daughter and you know, in our family dynamic. And the one of the last times I went back while I was modeling was 2014. And I took my Vitamix. <laughs> and I told my mom, I was like, no, I need, I need my Vitamix because like, you know, obviously I'm modeling. So I had like a very regimented life. I woke up at a certain time, went to sleep at a certain time, worked out. And I was blending green juices every day until Ramadan came and I started making the food because I wasn't fasting the first few weeks. And one thing led to another and my mom just kept saying, your blender works so much better than ours. I was like, <laughs> it's a Vitamix, no kidding. I know. Hey, quick question about that. What do you do? Do you, does one check a Vitamix or you can put that in your carry-on? I mean, how does that work? Oh, so I just couldn't check the blade. Right. I could the whole thing. I had to take the, I think I had to take the blade out. So I carried the, the actual thing, but I checked the heavy part. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> I love my Vitamix, by the way. It's awesome. I, know. I, I wish I had that same relationship with it now, but I. <laughs> <laughs> so your mom is saying you've got this super powered blender. And what, what did you decide to do with it? I mean, it just felt like everything I made was better to her because of the blender. And so. That September, I came back home because it was getting ready to be fashion week. And I told my mom, I was like, I'm not going back to modeling. And my mother is an entrepreneur and she's, she's in all sorts of businesses across the globe. And 
she was like, oh, good. You know, <laughs> she's like, great. <laughs> now you can become a lawyer. I was like, okay. by the way, can I have your Vitamix? Yeah, I was like, oh, I'm not becoming a lawyer at all. So I packed up. I rented my place out in Brooklyn, New York, in the same neighborhood I live in now. I moved to Seattle and moved in with my best friend, her two kids and her husband. And I slept in the room of the girls. I slept in one of their bunks. And I just got to work on, you know, trying to figure out how does one scale a condiment business? What does the market look like? Who are the big players in it? What's really missing from it? And in that, I was like, oh, my God, I've been missing from the conversation all along. Yeah. What was the initial condiment that you came up with that you're like, this is the one that we have to put out there. This is the one that we're going to start this with. This is going to be the basis, the foundation of this business. The coconut cilantro, the green sauce that we have. Um, I I remember making it and it was so spicy, but it, it also was like really sweet and chunky because of the shredded coconuts. And I was like, I don't know what this is, but I know that the cilantro and the coconut and the jalapenos play really well together. And if I like it, others are going to like it. It's interesting to hear you say that because those two flavors, coconut and cilantro, are very polarizing to the American palate. People either love cilantro or they hate it. Similar with coconut. Yeah. My general rule of thumb is if you don't like cilantro, we're not friends. Yeah. I mean, until, I love you're, at farmer, until you're at a farmer's market and people are like, no. <laughs> like, <"Sup."> like, <laughs> they do that. She's right. They do that. It's like they're mad at you for it yeah, now. Move along. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's, all, it's so interesting because food is so, you know, we're in a space now where people are like, food is political. Food is so political, but it's also so personal. And you could be in a random town doing samples and someone tells you a whole story about their relationship to cilantro. Yeah. Uh, you're absolutely right. I feel like as a as a chef who cooks out there for a living now, uh, I get those stories all the time. People want to break down. Well, let me tell you why I don't like something. You know, it, it's pre- it's pretty incredible. And uh, when you just shook your hand and wait and said no, I've seen that so many times. It it, it makes me crazy. It's, yeah, it's interesting. You're listening to our conversation with Hawa Hassan. She's just written her first cookbook with Julia Tertian. It's called In Bibi's Kitchen. It's time to take a short break. Coming up, we'll get into some of the recipes from the book. And after the break, more exploration of Somali flavors and how Hawa created a way to bring them to your table. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. You're listening to Seasoned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasons. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're spending an hour with hot sauce entrepreneur and cookbook author Hawa Hassan. Hawa is the author of In Bibi's Kitchen, the recipes and stories of grandmothers from the eight African countries that touch the Indian Ocean. In our first segment, Hawa described a bit of her early life and her journey from Africa to Seattle to New York. After ending her modeling career, Hawa created Baz Baz, Somali-inspired hot sauces. Well, my intention was just to start where I was with what I had. So I was like, I'm starting in Somalia. Well, what are Somali hot sauces? And there are these two hot sauces, this coconut cilantro and this tamarind date sauce. And so people who were in business were like, do what you know best. 
absolutely the best advice you could probably get there. Listen, I tell people all the time, if you don't make risotto every day, don't make it in a food competition. Don't show up at my house and make it for a dinner for the first time. Yeah, I I say like, go deep, not wide. Hawa, so you create the sauce, basbas. What does that mean, basbas? It means chili in Somali. Ah, excellent. So you make your way to the green markets, little Union Square action. I was using one of the green market people to create my condiments. And sometimes in exchange for money to pay for the product, I was working at the green market. (laughs) So (laughs) I was um, peddling their jams at four o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Whatever it takes. Listen, I've been there. I have bartered at my local farmer's market on Thursdays. I'm like... I need that arugula. Yeah. And the director's like, then come here at four and help me set up. I'm like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. So I I did that for about a year. Then I went into just other markets, you know, local markets and then sampling at grocery stores. And slowly but surely, we got into Whole Foods and Dean and Deluca. Whole Foods is a big one. That's a big one to get into. Did you find it hard? I'm just curious as far as like coming up with a product and then getting it to market that big a market. Did you find it hard to deal with the regulations, the safety stuff? And did you go to a big production facility and have them produce it? Or were you working out of a small kitchen? How was the production? I was working with a small kitchen in the Hudson Valley, but I was really lucky. And I I think my philosophy in life is if you're doing what you're meant to be doing, walls act as literal water. They just, everything gets out of your way. And so my mentor who helped me, walk me through all of this, who's one of my best friends till today is a lady in her 80s named Beth Linsky. But Beth is someone who's been jamming for 32 years. So she knew about pH. She knew about, she knew that if I were going to make these sauces, the way that they were going to be bright in flavor would be the way that things went into the, whether it's into the blender or into the pot. So I had a lot of help from her and professionals like her. Once all of that came together, we went to Cornell to scale the condiments. That's a a, a task in itself, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm no scientist. So I was like, we got to hire people. But you know what I do? I'm no scientist either. But I generally tell people if I have a microphone, I'm probably an expert. (laughs) (laughs) So just carry a microphone with you. You're good to go. Right. How, How what is your favorite thing to put those sauces on? Like the tamarind date sauce? which I just tasted tamarind for the first time last month. What? Yes, I have a Nigerian friend who buys it on Etsy, and she came and she's like, you have to taste this. I took it out of the pod, and there there went my paycheck. I went and ordered a whole, a whole box. It's delicious. Oh, I love tamarind. I mean, if you've tasted like a sherry glaze, that's like the flavor of tamarind. So like that, that sour, but also like back of the mouth, you know, hint of sweetness. You're like, I want more. Uh, But I put the, I put the sauces on roasted vegetables. I put them on chicken. I often use them the same way that someone would use salsa. I put them on my burrito bowls. I put them on my burritos. I use them on everything. I love it. Inevitably, there is a time when we do these interviews where my stomach starts growling. So apologies if it's making noise. (laughs) So the Sauce business is actually what brings you to kind of where you are now, which is you have this cookbook. But what was the true impetus behind creating this cookbook? You know, my intentions are to talk about Africa 360. What does it look like if I were to talk about Africa from the five senses and just a full circle? 
And so going into my business, that was the business plan. It was, how do I create a line of condiments, start in Somalia, expand to a condiment line from the continent of Africa? How do I then go into people's kitchens? You know, I can do that through writing and then I can do it on TV. You know, it was like, what do we do the first two years? We get established. What do we do the next two years? You sell a cookbook. You know, what do you do after that? You, you know, you have your own TV show. How do you start to be at the table in a way that is empowering to the customer and also carries your message deeper? And so that's where the cookbook came from. It was, I have like, you were just saying I had a mic and the opportunity was there to talk about eight African countries and the thread happens to be grandmothers in the Indian Ocean. But a lot of what we're doing right now is educating the consumer. The Indian Ocean is chosen because it is the spice trade. So if you know about cinnamon, you shouldn't have any issues being able to make these foods. And the flavors themselves are amazing. You're talking a lot about even just cinnamon and spice tray. What are some of those flavors that are kind of right on point with this type of cuisine? Coriander, cumin, cinnamon, cloves, turmeric, you know, whether it's toasting the turmeric, um, whether it's making your own spice blend, showing you that, you know, butter can be used outside of Ethiopian food, but also enabling you and teaching you how to make your own spices, right? If I can, you know, remake your pantry and if I can prepare your pantry, then you can cook from a global perspective. As you look through the book, it's really beautiful um, just to look at the way things are laid out. And I think something that you and your partner do, which makes complete sense for those of us who don't know anything about East Africa or Africa, the continent, is you take us there. So what is it that you want people who read this cookbook to understand about East Africa and what the BBs or the grandmas bring to East Africa, because that's essentially what enabled you to write this book. I mean, I want them to see themselves in the book. You know, um, the book was named BBs for a reason. It was because three years ago, I was like, I know that Americans can say this. And grandmothers mean a lot. We all have a grandmother if we're lucky, right? So everything in this book has been hand selected, has been selected with intention. And so my hope is that everybody who picks up this book sees themselves in it and can relate to the stories, the human stories, and then can, you know, place themselves in a kitchen by making the food. So how I got to ask what it's like to interview grandmothers and talk about, especially with recipes with grandmothers, because I've done this in the past. And even from my own grandmother years ago, getting recipes from her, I mean, they're written on like some tomato wrapper or something. And it's it's all scribbled on there. Half of it, you can't even tell what she wrote. And you try to ask her about it. She can't remember. And she just makes it up as she goes. Was it difficult interviewing these grandmothers and getting the recipes from them? Difficult? No. Um challenging in that like you know we had to video it there were language barriers there were you know there was just space between us sometimes I was here and then a grandmother would be in Madagascar and our photographer would be with her and there were electricity issues so there were like logistical issues but outside of that these women were so excited to share their stories you know they were so excited to be invited to the table And I I think that is all across the American um, landscape in terms of food. We don't talk about our elders and we don't talk to our elders. We just appear on TV like, this is my grandmother's recipe. Like, oh, okay. (laughs) 
just the thought of you even saying interviewing a Madagascar grandmother on Skype or Zoom and electric I mean my toes are twitching right now just thinking about all the issues that could arise from that. Yeah. There's <laughs> a lot of being flexible, being you know, involved in making this work. I could imagine. It's interesting, Hawa, because as I hear you talking, I, I rely heavily on my mom. I'm still lucky enough to have her. Um, and I think about her. I, I don't have my grandmothers, but she'll often talk about her aunts or her sisters who are all in their 80s and 90s. And something that struck me, and they're all grandmas, right, or abuelas. Mm -hmm. And what strikes me it is kind of comical. They will fight over who makes the better rice because <laughs> there is no faster way to get your Puerto Rican card snatched from you than to not make rice with pegao, which is like the burnt part, right? And right. I know every country has its own version of that. Was there any infighting with your BBs? Were they like, oh, I make this really well? And you, you interviewed no. another one and she was like, oh, no, that's not how you make it. Yeah, no. So only two of the BBs know one another. And one is in Yonkers and the other one is in Nairobi. But no, they there there wasn't any of that. There was a lot of like, you know, I think it never even occurred to them until the book was out that, the scope of the book. Yeah. And also it puts into great perspective for me too. Like I, I always tell my partner, if something will happen. He'll be like, how exciting that that happened. I'm like a lot of other things are happening in the world. And that that's their thought process as well. It's like, okay, this young woman's coming over. I'm helping her with a, it's almost like a school project to them. Like I'm helping her with a project. And it's quite a project. We're talking with Hawa Hassan about her experience writing her first book, In Bibi's Kitchen. It celebrates the Bibis, the African grandmothers, who were cooking the dishes of their native East African countries along the Indian Ocean. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We'll get back to our conversation with Hawa about the Bibis featured in the book and get some of the recipes in just a few minutes. Right now, you're going to hear from our producers, Robin Doyanakin and Katie Talarski, about how you can support Connecticut Public Radio. Hello, everyone. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken with Katie Tillerski. We are jumping in for a couple of minutes here to ask for your support. If you're listening on your phone or computer, visit wnpr.org slash donate or call 1-800-584-2788. Your pledge right now will support Seasoned and all the local shows and news you hear on Connecticut Public Radio. What a privilege it is for us to be able to bring you the stories of interesting people in the food world. It is our great joy to give our airways over to local and national cooks, chefs, and food and drink makers who hope to inspire you to cook more and appreciate food in deeper ways. We can only do that because you support us. Please do so now if you can. Go to WMPR.org slash donate or call 1-800-584-2788 and become a sustaining member of Connecticut Public Radio. That's right. The number is 1-800-584-2788. Uh, Katie Tularski here. I am honored to be here with Robin Doyen Aiken. I love working with Robin every week on Seasoned and working with Chef Plum and Marisol and um, learning so much about food and about chefs. And, um, you know, I do have to say that I, yeah, I just learn so much every week. So, um, again, if you are a cook or maybe you're, you're not a great cook but you're just interested, you like to eat, 
you're interested in food, this is a great show. You're listening to the show because you have you have an interest in food, and we're asking you to support it. Support some of the new programming that we have here on Connecticut Public Radio. Uh, Seasoned is one of those new shows. We're we're having a lot of fun. Um, we do need a break, although we do talk about serious topics on season. Sometimes we talk to restaurant owners who are struggling through uh, the pandemic, but um, we also have fun. We have a lot of fun, and I think we need that right now as well. So call us and support this program, 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org slash donate. Yes, you wouldn't dream of walking into a restaurant or a bakery and taking a bite of a croissant or a donut and then walking out without paying for it. I mean, that would be crazy. So the ask we're making here today is that you help pay for what you consume. Connecticut Public Radio is a great buffet of news and local talk shows and national shows. Fresh Air, This American Life, It's Been a Minute, Wait, Wait. If you listen to those shows and our shows, Where We Live, The Colin McEnroe Show, Audacious, Disrupted, Next, and Seasoned, if you enjoy our shows, please consider helping pay for them. You can do that at wnpr.org slash donate or by calling 1-800-584-2788 and becoming a sustaining member. Or any amount you can spare is appreciated. It doesn't have to be a, a personal fortune because support from lots of listeners, all of you in this community, adds up. Please do support what you listen to every day. Robin, I feel like every time I fundraise with you, my dog comes over and drinks out of the um, <laughs> the water bowl. And so <laughs> that's what's happening right now. Lila gets thirsty. Yeah, we make people hungry too. That's right. Um, so again, 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org slash donate. Um, so important for you to support all of our um, programming. We have three new shows here at Connecticut Public Radio. We are growing um, the newsroom. We're growing our talk shows. Uh, it's so exciting. Um, it has been, 2020 was just an incredibly hard year for so many people. Um, and we know that that means that there are so many people who maybe can't step forward and pledge support to uh, this programming now. But if you're someone who can, we're asking you to do that. You're asking you to uh, be there to keep this programming coming to you um, day after day and week after week. So support Robin, who is an incredible producer, um, and all of the team here at Season 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org slash donate. Thanks, Katie. Thanks for saying that. If you're new to Seasoned, here's what you'd be supporting with your pledge. We recently had conversations with Ina Garten, a local turkey farmer, Sam the Cooking Guy, drinks writer Julia Bainbridge, Josephine Joyner, who's a.k.a. Juicy J, um, the brewer from Connecticut's only non-alcoholic beer brewery, uh, food reporter Leanne Griffin, and the dairy farmer and chocolate maker from Thorncrest Farm in Goshen. We talked with local chefs from all over the state who've described the pandemic's impact on their restaurants. And of course, talking with you during our monthly live listener call-in shows has been a blast. All of those conversations are made possible because of your support. If you haven't donated yet, please visit wnpr.org donate or call 1-800-584-2788 to keep these conversations going. 
Robin, you just mentioned the um, the call-in shows once a month. Uh, a few weeks ago, we did a call-in show with Leanne Griffin from um, Hearst, Connecticut, a great food reporter, and we were talking about we're taking calls for about great takeout in the state, and that was such a um, heartwarming show just to hear from all over the state, to hear from people who want to support local businesses. I feel like that's part of what this show is about, is um, amplifying these businesses who you know have great stories to tell. So uh, again, support Seasoned. Do your part now, 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're thrilled to be talking this hour with Hawa Hassan about her new cookbook, In Bibi's Kitchen. Just before the break, Hawa was talking with us about the Bibis, the grandmothers, featured in her book. Hawa and her co-author, Julia Tertian, interviewed each Bibi, and we asked Hawa what struck her about these special women. I think most of them, the way they talked about time and how they spent their time, what they're most proud of is often the same thing, which is their, their children or their grandchildren. Yeah. There is no, there was no air about any of them, you know, and there were ones that were like the wife to an ambassador or, you know, the so-and-so of her, her tribe. And all the questions were the same and every answer was often similar in that when they look back, what they're most proud of is the children that they've had and the communities that they've built. That's beautiful. I love that. I also love that you've profiled a BB in Yonkers, New York. That is hysterical to me. Are there any BBs in particular that stood out for you or that stuck with you? I mean, all of them have touched me in their own way, but Ma Gannett, who lives in Yonkers, has an incredible story. And, you know, I call her like the MVP of this book, because even when I thought I couldn't go on, I would like send her a text and she'd be like, talk to my friend in London. She just is incredible in every sense of the word. And the day that I went to her house, it was a feast. She's always stuck out to me. And it's the country that I've grown up the closest to, you know, all my friends are Eritreans and Ethiopians. And so it was almost like a home going for me. Do you still maintain contact with a lot of these women? Oh, yeah. Yesterday, I was on the phone with our grandmother in South Africa. I'm on Instagram with a few of them. So we're, yeah, That's I to have a lifelong relationship. How uh, oftentimes in a cookbook, you'll get some sort of prologue or some sort of note from the author saying, this is what you need to make successful recipes for this particular book. So what do we need? What are the essentials to cook African food? I think you have to have a pantry that's reflective of the foods you want to make. So your pantry has to go beyond peppers and salt. You're going to need cumin. You're going to need coriander. You're going to need turmeric. You're going to need cloves. You're going to need, you know, not in our book, but some recipes call for black lime. You'll need that. And so I think also once you start to build a pantry that's reflective of the world, you'll start to see that it expands even the way you think about the world. And what you're able to cook also expands, right? Because if you have rice in your pantry, and you have the spices, you're able to make a Persian dish, Mm -hmm. you're able to make a pilaf styled rice from anywhere in the world, if your pantry is well equipped. And you know, we're lucky we live in a world now where we can get any of these things from Amazon and have them delivered in two days, you know, they anything. Absolutely. Yeah. And in some areas, you can go to the bodega and find all. (laughs) I just got turned on to a bodega in South Norwalk that I had no idea existed. My sister and I, we have cubbies there now. Those are like the creature comforts (laughs) that we 
thought we had left in New York City, but alas, we found them. I love a well-equipped bodega. Oh, and the cat. You can't be a bodega without a bodega cat. <laughs> How about what is, uh, what, is, what are some comfort food from the cookbook? What qualifies as, as comfort food in East African cuisine? Even when I spoke to the grandmothers, like, you know, when are you your happiest or what, what do you crave? It's much more about the people that are around the table as opposed to what's in the dish. And so when I think about comfort food, I think about like my mom's pasta sauce, or I think about being with my mom, I think about like one of my sisters cooking and the screaming of my family in the background. But there it's not defined in the same way. It's much more deeper, a lot more of comfort for me is when my kids are all around the table and no one can get a word in. Mm. Especially in just checking out the book and, and doing some research here. One of the things I think surprised me was how much pasta plays a role in Somali cuisine. It's kind of insane. I just, I just never would have thought of that. Yeah. And another thread in this book is there's a bit of a history lesson at the beginning of each chapter, because again, spelling out the opportunity to our audience here, I think empowers the audience and gives people the opportunity to be welcome to this kind of a book, right? So talking about how Somalia was colonized by the Italians, having a pasta recipe, you know, talking about our idea of a red gravy. And the only difference, again, being those spices that came through the Indian Ocean. I think so few people, especially here in the United States, realize that that colonization had this influence. And that sometimes is the catalyst for some really unique cuisines. I think about Vietnam. I think about places where, you know, people came from, you know, Western or Eastern Europe. And that forever infused an area's cuisine with something that you wouldn't think of. Right. The French heavily influenced the, the Vietnamese landscape in terms of food, right? But then, like, people talk about crepes and little bit of a history on crepes, you will learn that the French got it from another part of the world. I, I mean, food is such a connecting point for so many different things. I also, in doing some research, bananas and coconuts are incorporated into these meals. How does right. that pairing make sense? Because I'm talking about savory stuff. See, I'm not talking about like, you know, I can make my kid a banana and peanut butter sandwich and it makes complete sense right. to him. But if I put a banana in his carne mechala, he would probably throw it in my face and be like, woman, what are you doing? Until he gives it a try. I mean, <laughs> it's really all about how do you incorporate sweet and savory. In a lot of the cuisine here, there isn't a differentiation. What is the word? Differentiation. Ooh, that's a mouthful. <laughs> it's like the Caribbeans. They have their own version of bananas. You, you also do too with the plant. Maduros, yeah, yeah. But... It's the same way we're eating it, but we're having a different form of a banana or a banana at a different stage. You know, I can't think of a time in my life where I didn't think a banana was good with like a pizza or it's good with everything. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Bananas and pizza. I don't know. As as Connecticut people, I don't know if we can say that. I don't know if that's okay or not. You know, pizza's is a, <laughs> pizza's a religion here. We'll have to talk to our friends in New Haven who, you know, that, that pizza's religion. Oh, my God. Sorry. <laughs> she said sorry. We could try to tell our, our friends at uh, Moderna Pete's. Yeah. yeah. I, I believe pineapple goes on pizza, oh, no. so I'm probably not qualified. <laughs> 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 I know. I'm sorry, everyone. Yes. I love it. How uh, what, are, what are some of the first recipes folks should dive into? 
when they get your book, your cookbook? The Sukimo, which is greens with tomatoes, collard greens with tomatoes from Kenya. It's literally six ingredients. It cooks really fast. It's a different version of what people are used to because you've got coriander, cumin, and turmeric in there. Another thing I would say, an easy place to start would be in the Somalia chapter, the sugo, which in Italian means sauce. The only difference is the hawaj spice that goes into that. Again, very reflective of the Indian Ocean and those warm flavors. We have a, a, a starter bread in here that has like three or four ingredients in it called kitcha from Eritrea. Cooks really quickly and easy to make. Yeah, I, I think the whole book really does speak for itself in that nothing is too far-fetched. We've got some recipes actually featured on the website, ctpublic.org slash seasoned, that I want to dive into a little bit and talk a little bit about. Just the chef in me wants to talk, because like I said, I think this is a cuisine that we don't spend enough time on and need to learn more about, and that's why I think this book is so important. Zanzibar pilau. It's basically like a rice pilaf, right? It's a rice pilaf, which borrows its name from, you know, the Persian version. It's just white rice, unsalted butter, a yellow onion, cardamom pots, a whole cinnamon stick, cloves, unsweetened coconut milk again, you know, all of that cooked together. And what really makes it special is the whole spices that go into the dish. And you toast the rice as well, kind of in the pan, right? Yep. You do that in the beginning. Yeah, I think that brings out more of those nutty flavors and, and just adds a, a depth to the rice, which is unbelievable. And just like the Somalian dish, you know, the pilaf is often started with the aromatics, which is kind of a bit different from the way that rice is made here. But it's what really makes it special and opens up all the flavors in, in both the dishes. I live for rice. I'll go to a restaurant in a foreign land. I see a dish that has rice. That's the one I'm ordering. I out myself out as being from the Caribbean every single time. So I went to Puerto Rico not long ago and I, I was I was shocked by the similarities. in the food. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. Talk to us about the kicha fit fit. Yeah. So that's just a torn flatbread with spice butter and yogurt. Again, it starts with the kicha, which is our, you know, it's just bread. What makes it special is the, the ghee butter that's often used in Ethiopia and Eritrea. They have their own called um, ibe, and it's just salt, barbare, and butter. So this is just, you know, with the barbare mix, the flatbread, some kosher salt, and then plain yogurt. There is a uh, vanilla sauce from Madagascar. Yeah, there's a vanilla sauce from Comoros. Comoros. Often used as a topping, like a, a sweetener topping for desserts. And the, what makes it special mm. is just the heavy cream in the, in the vanilla pops. Comoros and Madagascar are like one and two in terms of importing a vanilla. And so, you know, we say like, make sure that your vanilla is from Madagascar if you're going to make something like this or Comoros. Duly noted. I actually just ran out of vanilla. It's so expensive. It's not cheap. That's the problem. <laughs> Especially now. Well, you know, one of the it's interesting because I saw what you do here and how you serve this. You use it with lobster, which is great. But I actually, I, I'll, I will when I'm poaching lobster in butter, I'll put vanilla pods in there. Ooh. And so you poach it in the butter, and then you serve the butter with it. It's delicious. I love it. And you can't make a cookbook without some drinks or seven. Right. There, there you go. Here we go. Buna, an Eritrean coffee. It was part of a coffee ceremony? So Eritreans and Ethiopians have a coffee ceremony for, you know, you drink coffee after you eat. Again, it's a part of like sitting in community. And so I can't remember the amount of times that Ma Ganette made me drink the little tiny coffee, but they make it in a thing called Jabana, 
and then they just pour it for you. But it's the roasting of the beans, the grinding. It's a whole, that's what the ceremony is. The actual making of the coffee from beans to cup. Right. Something that it's enjoyed usually with a group of people. And um, to them, it's like water or having a glass of wine with a group or a bottle of wine with a group. And Maganette, you said, pairs it with popcorn. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, she does pair it with popcorn. Wow. How about that? I think it's kind of a, an interesting way we we're coming full circle here with this interview, ending it with the drinks and talking about uh, the tea that you opened up with. And we're going to end with the tea as well. It looks like here, the Shah Kadeh. Uh, did I say that right? Yeah, it just means white tea because we put milk in it. So yeah. it's Shah Kadeh. And it's got uh, ginger and cardamom and clove and even black pepper in this tea. It, it sounds like with that black pepper would just be too much, but it's not, is it? At all. Um, I just made it the other day, actually, and it's I make it in a pot instead of a tea kettle. And just as I was blowing it, I was like, oh, my God, it feels like I'm sitting with my mom in the living room because there is something really special about the cloves and the cardamom and the black peppercorn. And I don't know. I think that when people think about spices, they often think about the way that it's traditionally used. And so if I could offer any advice, it would be to just start over with how you're using your things just to kind of the same way that I did with vanilla pod and lobster. I was like, Oh, okay. I love it. These are such a, a great recipes, such great ways of thinking of things that maybe you didn't want to use in the past on a savory thing, or maybe something you want to use on a savory thing that's generally used as a sweet uh, item. I love it. I mean, what a, what a great way to open up and broaden the horizons a little bit. Absolutely. Hawa, thank you so much for your time and for the imagery that you've just conjured about a piece of your culture and a piece of who you are. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This was a fun hour. That was Hawa Hassan, along with Julia Tertian. She's the author of In Bibi's Kitchen, the recipes and stories of grandmothers from the eight African countries that touched the Indian Ocean. Visit our website to see three recipes from the book. You're going to want to make that Zanzibar rice tonight. You'll find Hawa's recipes at ctpublic.org slash seasoned. Thank you for listening and for your support. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Seasoned is produced by Robin Doyanakin and Katie Tolarski. Please stick around for just a few more minutes so Robin and Katie can tell you how you can support Seasoned and all the local shows here on Connecticut Public Radio. Thank you so much for hanging out with the Season team for a few more minutes today. I'm Robin Doyan Aiken with Katie Talarski. We produce Seasoned each week, and we're asking for your support so we can keep shining a light on and giving a megaphone to people in the food world uh, with important stories to tell about themselves and about food. Visit WNPR.org slash donate or call 1-800-584-2788 to send us a message. When you donate this hour, you are saying, I want to hear more stories about food and food makers in Connecticut and beyond. 1-800-584-2788. Katie Tolarski here with Robin Doyan Aiken. And Robin, I think... Some of my favorite episodes of season so far, some of them have been some of the more well-known chefs that we've talked to, like Myron Mixon, the Barbecue King, or Ina Garten, just because it's, you know, you have a, you get excited when we talk to people who are sort of celebrity chefs. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also really love getting to know all of the different chefs and restaurant owners in all the corners of Connecticut, people who are surprising and interesting and have like 
very cool backgrounds. And then it gives you, you know, all sorts of inspiration to go and try out a new restaurant, try out a new, and we're doing a lot of takeout right now. So just trying out new places, getting to know different kinds of food. So again, I just am loving what you, Robin, are, and the hosts are doing with the show. And and hopefully our listeners are appreciating that too and are learning a lot about food and about um, their community. So call us and support Seasoned, 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org slash donate. Uh, do it now. Help us to read our goals. We can only do it with your support. Again, 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org slash donate. I've loved talking to those big name cooks too. Um, It's kind of like they're heroes. They're heroes to all of us who cook. And I've also loved the call-in shows too. You mentioned Leanne Griffin. Do you know, even though she's been on the food beat for more than a dozen years, our listeners were calling in and recommending spots to her that she hadn't heard of yet and that she is going to be trying. So it is a true community effort happening uh, on the season show. And we know that 2020 was a tough year for everyone. It wasn't only restaurants that had to learn to pivot to survive. Here at Connecticut Public Radio, we all had to learn how to pivot to keep bringing you the news and the local talk shows you depend on. We figured out how to bring you entirely new shows during a pandemic. Zoom and Skype are getting us through. Your donations are getting us through. If 2021 is looking like a better year for you and you can afford to, please support us. Jump on wnpr.org slash donate or call 1-800-584-2788 and give an amount that works for you. We will keep pivoting as needed, learning new technologies and investing in new ways to tell stories about our communities. Your support is so appreciated. One more time, go to wnpr.org slash donate or call 1-800-584-2788 right now to make your pledge. And thanks.